Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. Where can you find the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast strives to bring the top experts in all fields of medicine right to your favorite listening devices and also can be viewed on uh, our YouTube channel. Please note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional. Today's podcast will be on a topic near and dear to my heart chronic yeast infections. The past 20 years, my wife, Dr. Ricky Mitchell, and myself and our uh, practice in New York City, Mitchell Medical Group, we have specialized in treating these complicated cases of chronic yeast infections. It's also termed candida. It's been an area of medicine that's been very controversial for many years. But I think finally, due to strong patient outcries from women And for men, it's being recognized. However, being recognized and being treated properly are two different things. My guest today, Dr. Marjorie Crandall, has been on the podcast before a while back. And we had back then, and I believe we'll have today, a very spirited discussion about candida and yeast overgrowth. Dr. Crandall is a PhD mycologist by training. That's a, a yeast and fungus expert. And for the better part of probably five decades, she's been supporting patients uh, in their journey to get better through her yeast consulting services. And as you will see, Dr. Crandell and I um, may not agree on several approaches to candida treatment, but I have tremendous respect for her. And I think in my experience in treating a lot of these patients, that we're going to bring out a lot of important things for the listeners. Um, Her book that just came out called Overcoming Yeast Infections, I personally believe is the most comprehensive book on the subject for both lay people and healthcare personnel taking care of these patients. I mean, there are a lot of candida books out there and a lot of them are written just really from the holistic perspective about diet and herbs. And Dr. Crandell is a scientist, a researcher, and believes very much in using real medications to treat candida. So I'm really excited and happy to welcome back Dr. Marjorie Crandell to the podcast. Oh, hi, Dr. Mitchell. Okay, are you with us? Glad to be here. Oh, good, good. I'm really excited to have you on. And I'm really excited about your book, Overcoming Yeast Infections. I I think it's fantastic, and it's really obviously... um, you know, the most comprehensive work that I've seen on the subject. And it's obviously, it's been your life's work, which we're going to get into. So, Dr. Crandell, the first question I really want to ask you, why do you think, and you've battled with this, why do you think candida diagnosis has not been believed by so many allopathic physicians for a very long time? Well, you know, I've I've wondered about that right from the beginning when... <clears throat> My colleagues, who uh, are candida experts in the area of disseminated or invasive candidiasis, came out with the the comment that intestinal yeast infection uh, does not create a a syndrome that uh, produces a lot of different symptoms throughout the body as well as in the intestine. And I've thought about this for many years, <clears throat> and I think that there's there's a variety of answers to your question. Uh, I think first of all, the the academic skeptics I call them, uh, the academic physicians who work in hospitals. Um, <clears throat> Got scooped. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. I think you're spot on, hundred percent. You know, actually, I just interrupt you for a second because I think you're you're right on the right track. You know, I, it was like sort of my next question that, you know, the original people who described candidate and cases in depth, Orrin Truss and William Crook, they were not academic physicians. They were not infectious disease physicians. They were not gynecologists. 
they were labeled under allergists and environmental medicine. And I think they were looked That's at right. as, as kooks, you know, even though they were very meticulously documenting these cases. So I think I think you're right. right. I, think, I think one of the if it come if it come out of Harvard or Stanford back then, it would have been a much uh, easier road. But here were physicians that were in practice that were seeing some unusual cases that other doctors didn't even want to see. And, that's right. Right. And I think that's what and they they ended up publishing books, which was heinous back then. Now it's not. But to publish a book you know, about a condition without publishing, I don't know, hundreds of academic articles back in their day was considered, you know, heinous. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, the the academic skeptics uh, do not see ordinary patients who are in the community who are ambulatory. That means that the patients can walk into the office and they're not seriously ill. The academic skeptics who who disparaged this idea of the yeast syndrome <clears throat> only saw seriously ill patients in the hospital who often died from disseminated candidiasis where <clears throat> the yeast spread throughout the body and and infected the deep organs, the liver, the kidney, and the spleen. And they're very uh, difficult infections to cure when they're when they're that uh, invasive. But the ordinary patients who are otherwise healthy get sick because they've taken a lot of antibiotics, or corticosteroids, or female hormone estrogen. 100%. Those are the the three main. Yes. Uh, medications that cause an overgrowth of yeast somewhere in the body. Yes. And those are the three favorite medications that doctors prescribe. So what are they going to do if it causes this miserable syndrome? Yeah, you know, I like to... So I think that's the second reason. Yeah, that that's a big one. I think that's super important. You know, the question I used to hear patients... Well, the statement that patients used to make when they were crying in my office, they said, the doctors don't believe I have candida. They say that can't be possible. I'd have to have AIDS. I'd have to be in the hospital, you know, near death's door to have this. And, you know, the analogy that I make also, and I gave a lecture about this at a, at a conference a couple of years ago, right before COVID broke, was that... We know in society there are patients that have celiac disease, which, as, as you know, it's well understood. It's been well delineated that this is a severe form of gluten uh, intolerance, you know, which causes disease. But I think doctors are now accepting that there's a whole spectrum. Even Peter Green, Alessio Fasano, the two biggest celiac experts in the country, there's a whole range of patients that have gluten sensitivity. You know, I'm just giving an example, and I think the same thing is true with Canada. Yes, when I trained in the late 1980s, early 1990s, I saw AIDS patients that had Canada overgrowth in not only their mouth, in their esophagus. I mean, they were immune compromised. But exactly what you said, that patients that have been on uh, frequent courses of antibiotics, typically I see because of acne or chronic sinus infections, and again, sometimes the ENTs use this a lot, you know, with oral steroids. These patients are prone to getting, you know, candida overgrowth in the body. And I don't think it's really appreciated. And the other thing I'm really concerned about, Dr. Crandell, is that now, I mean, if you turn on a TV, every other ad is one of the, the, the biologics that are being used, the Humeras, the Embrils. These also are immunosuppressive you know, and for all these autoimmune diseases. And, you know, so I think there are a lot of risk factors, as you're saying, you know, and again, why um, doctors just not looking at it the right way. So Yeah, now there's uh, a new medicine for diabetes that mm -hmm. causes genital yeast infections because <clears throat> uh, the sugar is spilled into the urine Really? And then that contaminates the genitals during urination. So that's a, another factor that I think is going to be growing because they're advertising those medic medications for diabetes 
on TV all the time. Right. And as you know, also, we all know, too, diabetes is a risk for candida yeast overgrowth, you know, just having high sugar in oh, the body. Definitely. That's that's yeah. why I recommend that, that patients get tested for HIV and diabetes, because those, those are the main types of uh, risk factors that can be tested with, with blood tests. Do you think also, um, and I, I think this is true, that also the whole candida diagnosis, whether it's vaginitis or other areas, which we'll get into, was it also that you think that maybe also for a long time in a male-dominated vacation like physicians, that they just weren't believing the women and they weren't really listening to them, you know, about their, well, their symptoms? There's that part of gaslighting where they, they just don't believe uh, the patient and uh, they, they make them feel really, uh, I don't know what the word is, that the patient feels that the doctor's just not listening to them. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, what I find, and I'm sure you do too in your consulting service, that so many of the patients have to make this self-diagnosis, self-discovery from things that they read. And now, fortunately, they have a little bit more access on the internet. But as we'll get to, there's a lot of information on the internet, and some of it is wrong. Some of it is, um, I think, exaggerated. And that's why I think your book is really an important resource for patients who want to know really more in depth. And as you, I know for many years, how to work with your doctor, since I know you're not actually treating patients, you know, you're a consultant, you're a PhD, but that you're hoping that these patients go back to their doctor and say, look, I need, you know, more thorough um, help. Okay, let's get into the next thing, which again, this is another, you know, it all ties into the same thing. You know, the biggest reason also doctors didn't like the candida overgrowth um, diagnosis, especially for all these varied symptoms, is, is that there was really no definitive diagnostic test. You know, of course, doctors like diagnostic testing. and But we've learned, I think we've become a lot more humble. I mean, even like with diseases like Lyme disease, you know, there's a lot of tests, but they're not all that accurate. And that's a big problem in that particular area of medicine. And the same well, there is, is one definitive test, for what, and candida? that is to to test for immune complexes in the blood. For candida. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Let's talk about that for a second, because uh, again, I I do have a pretty good immunology background, and um, unfortunately, in New York too, there's a lot of candida testing you're not even allowed to do. I don't know why. <laughs> That's another whole subject. But when you say yeah. immune complexes, I mean, you can check for immunoglobulins, IgM, IgA, to candida. Is that what you're talking about? Because immune complexes, I tend to think of, it, it's uh, it's what we see like in serum sickness. Well, it's a combination between the IgG, which okay. is the major antibody, right. and the candida antigen. Okay. And... Hmm. They, they take the, the blood sample and they have to separate the immune complex. And I think they use urea. i do not not sure with the laboratory test. But, um, or you can test directly for candida antigen in the blood. But, it does, but everybody has candida in their system. So what makes that helpful? Is that they have a just well, high level? If you're overgrown with yeast in the intestine, some of the yeast antigen leaks into the bloodstream. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Right. Because this is a mucosal membrane kind of thing that we're talking about. Because that, that is another important distinction. I mean, if somebody has candida in their blood, that could be deadly. And that's what I think most of the allopathic doctors are saying. Like, you can't have candida, you know, because that's typically in a, a cancer patient that's immune suppressed or an AIDS patient. But right. candida can colonize, you know, take, take a residence in our mucous membranes. But you're saying that if there's an overgrowth, some of the antigen can seep into the bloodstream and cause, uh, you know, be able to react. Is that correct? That's a, that's right. That's a very important distinction. It's not the whole yeast mm -hmm. that's getting into the blood. It's just pieces of the cell wall of candida come off and 
pass into the uh, bloodstream, and that's detected. But there's there's a problem here because when the patients self-diagnose, the first thing they do is they go out and they buy some supplements that are anti-candida. And so they're self-treating based on the symptoms without doing the tests. And so by the time they get to a doctor who does test for candida, uh, they get a false negative test. Oh, that's important. Okay. What about also the already self-treated. Yeah. What about the questionnaires, which, you know, I, I think are underrated. Like, I think you mentioned in your books or you, you give, uh, uh, you know, reference to Santelman. You know, the, again, doctors used to not like questionnaires. They thought they were too vague or not scientific enough. But I, I think people are coming around in the scientific community. I mean, I, I deal with something also called mast cell activation, which is a very um, – difficult diagnosis to make sometimes because really a lot of it's history. I mean, that's what we, that's what we are supposed to be able to do as doctors take good histories. But do you find like the questionnaires also helpful again, when you're working with patients? Well, there's published questionnaires that started out with crook, but unfortunately uh, it's not based on any studies and there are uh, some questions that are not related to uh, Canada, but then there's the other uh, questionnaire that was published, and uh, it's by Santelman, mm-hmm. and that was a controlled clinical prospective placebo-controlled study, and it's published in a, a peer-reviewed medical journal. So that is a good questionnaire to, to look at, but again, I... I warn patients all the time that if they're self-treating with antifungal supplements, they get a false negative test. So you have to mm-hmm. test before treating. Is the Santelman questionnaire in your book? I don't remember. I'm just like flipping through or you just reference it in the book. Oh, it's in the book. You have the book, the questionnaire. Okay, so that's good for patients to do. I, you know, I, I think it is helpful. Um, again, I agree with you. I don't think people... Patients should self-diagnose themselves. I mean, you could take, I think a questionnaire is a good screening test to see if it this is. diagnosis it's should be. Test. Right. Absolutely. It's the right word, screening. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I want to ask and you something. And then you have to go on and get the blood test. Okay. I want to ask you something that I, again, I lectured about, and I, I've talked to you about this privately because uh, I, I think about this a lot. I've been, you know, again, taking care of patients like this for two decades. I, I gave so much thought to what was going on with these patients. And again, I started to make the analogy between like celiac disease and candida. And if you'll bear with me a minute, I'll, I'll explain what I mean. You know, for many years, in, again, in my medical training, when we learned about celiac disease, it was supposed to be just in infants and they had big bellies and they were malnourished. And now, you know, Peter Green and Alessio Fasano at Harvard have really shown that it's a multi-system disease. I mean, what, like Dr. Fasano likes to, when he gives his lectures, like, you know, make a parody from the movie, what's, what's, what, what occurs in the gut doesn't stay in the gut, like after the Las Vegas uh, movie. And meaning that, you know, we know that with celiac, there's a lot of extra intestinal manifestations. So, you know, people, like I remember some of my first cases that I saw of celiac didn't, had minimal gut symptoms. They mainly had arthritis and others had rashes. So that gave rise to what Dr. Fasano ended up later on really uh, describing leaky gut. You know, how the membrane in the intestine is actually only one cell thick. And when there's inflammation, the... Um, the celiac antigens actually leave the GI tract and start going to other areas of the body, causing inflammation and these other symptoms. And I made a parallel in my thinking of seeing a lot of these candidate patients over a lot of years that a lot of them, as you described earlier, they had antibiotics, they were either on steroids or proton pump inhibitors, things that changed the microbiome where the candida could overgrow. And Again, the patients that I'm seeing in my practice are are not just the GI patients, but they're the vaginitis patients where, again, I believe, you know, we'll have a discussion about this, that there's, again, that leaky gut and some of this candida starts to go to the vaginal area and overgrows. I've seen it with patients that have chronic rashes, like fungal dermatitis, different 
you know, um, tinea infections. And of course, the, what I call the more deeper infections when they get brain fog and fatigue. So I guess what I want to ask you, uh, again, I didn't see the staging in your book, because again, I, I mentioned I kind of came up with this staging. And <laughs> um, is that something that you can agree with? I know, because I know a lot of times you yeah, and I, I agree, agree with everything. You do. You said so far. Oh, okay. Keep going. This is rare. I wasn't so sure because you know you and I have some nice discussions. <laughs> so I, but I, I, I think again that's what's fooled so many doctors is that these patients are presenting with so many different symptoms. It's not just the women with vaginitis. I mean that's kind of clear cut. I mean any any good gynecologist is going to acknowledge you know a woman that has chronic vaginitis. They might be frustrated in, in treating them, and we'll discuss how. Your method is why they're not being successful, but but I think in general doctors are like overwhelmed. I mean, the patient's complaining of fatigue. They have rashes. They, you know, they maybe have bloating, which we know is a big thing. They're like, you know, like no, you know, this can't be from something called candida. But again, in my practice, the the bells go off when I start hearing all of these things. And and classically, a patient will tell me, oh, you know. I was I was struggling with some stomach issues and and then I you know went on a very high carb diet I was eating a lot of sugar and you know then I took some antibiotics and boom you know all of a sudden the women get the vaginal yeast infection the men and women get chronic sinus issues and I always like to tell my patients that it's interesting the sinus tissue very similar uh, histologically you know the cells and the the microbiome as the vaginal area so. I've, I've hopefully I've saved those several patients from getting repeated operations when their chronic sinus was due to, I believe, yeast overgrowth because they improved on antifungals, you know, versus just giving them more antibiotics or steroids. So anyway, um, okay. Well, okay. I'm really glad you agree with me on that because I, I thought it's so important. I think people, the patients are, feel so misunderstood. And that takes me to the next two things. And again, what I really love about your book respect about your work is how you've approached the uh, pharmacologic treatment of candida with antifungal medications. As I said, I've, I've used you as a resource because I, as we all both know, typically, let's just say, for example, the women that have chronic vaginitis can't, and, it's, and let's say it's diagnosed as, you know, through, uh, you know, a swab that, or a culture that it's yeast, they're given three pills of diflucan. And after the three pills, they're like, okay, that's enough, you know, and, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the women get reoccurrences over and over again. And maybe they're lucky if they get another two or three pills from the gynecologist. So maybe can you explain to the listeners your approach and how more thoroughly patients need to be treated to eradicate this problem? Well, my eureka moment was when I was uh, still a graduate student and suffering from this chronic recurrent yeast vaginitis, and I was reading in a journal article that the yeast invades the mucosal tissue and it grows inside epithelial cells. And I saw an electron micrograph picture of a yeast inside a vaginal epithelial cell. And I said, Eureka, that's it. That's why after treatment, the yeast keeps coming back. It's still there in my tissues. And and bless my gynecologists. And, you know, this is a long time ago, decades, that my gynecologist, just a minute, I got to write something down here. Um, said, take, uh, not take, when you say take, that means orally, use a vaginal antifungal. At that time, gynolotrin had inserts. These were dry tablets. And um, he said, use a vaginal antifungal gynolotrin tablet uh, for three days at ovulation time, and that prevented the overgrowth of yeast during the 
the second half of the menstrual cycle, just before menstruation, when the women usually get uh, another bladder, uh, sorry, another vaginal yeast infection. I'm sorry, can you clarify that again for me too? So you're saying that um, that the women are more prone to a yeast infection during their menstrual cycle or right before, you know? Well, the cycle's 30 days. It's between ovulation and menstruation. Oh, so it's in between that, okay. And so your gynecologist had told you just the to... the Luteal phase, right? So your gynecologist was sort of prescient in in recommending that you, I guess, would prophylactically or you know proactively treat during that phase to avoid getting a flare up for six months. For six months, mm-hmm. okay. So I didn't get any yeast infections during that time, and I was very happy with him and the world. And I recommend that in step number 10 in my book, I have a 10-step program, and step right. number 10 is prevention. Right. So you can use antifungals prophylactically when you're, when you're not uh, experiencing symptoms to prevent the infection from growing again because the yeast live inside your vaginal cells, your mouth cells, your intestinal cells, your skin cells. That and is so, yeah. They're, is, they're what I call latent. Yes. Is they're not growing. They're just there, but they're releasing um, antigens off the cell surface that continue to produce inflammation. And it's an allergic reaction. It's called an id reaction. Idiopathic reaction means... Nobody knows the cause of it. You know, but I thing, do. well, that's really interesting what you're saying. And the other thing, too, I know because I deal also a lot with mold, toxic mold syndrome. That's another whole topic I've done podcasts on. But the, we know also the candida releases mycotoxins. I mean, something called gliotoxin is released from candida. Um, but you said something also, again, that's why I'm enjoying this conversation. It made it super crystal clear. You know, I, I, again, I don't expect the lay people, the listeners to really fully appreciate this, but a lot of infections, like even bacterial infections, you know, they, they, you know, they obviously, they affect tissue, whether it's your lungs or your sinuses, but something like tuberculosis, okay, again, something we don't see very much anymore, um, but that was a, a frightening disease and it is what's called a mycobacterium. And one of the, th- as you know, because I know you know uh, infectious disease, it's an intracellular organism. It gets inside the cell. So it, it makes it harder for the immune system to fight it off. And typically when we're treating tuberculosis, those patients are on six months of therapy. They don't get three pills and say, you're cured. So I, I, what I'm extrapolating is what you're saying the candida also is getting intracellularly into the cell and it needs a long course of therapy to really fully eradicate it from coming back. Exactly. And, and I say that in the, in the book, mm-hmm. the, uh, the intracellular location of the yeast produces red tissue. So when the doctor looks in your mouth or you're in your vagina or who does a scope and looks inside your intestine and they see red tissue, they'll oftentimes dismiss that and say, oh, that's just inflammation. But that's a yeast infection. It's called chronic atrophic erythematous candidiasis. Atrophic means not growing. Erythematous means red. And candidiasis is a yeast infection. Is that what's happening with some of these women that have... Uh, like this vulvovaginitis, do you think, in some cases, like where they're not having as vulvodynia. much... Vulvodynia. Like, vulvodynia. Uh-huh. So you think in the vulvodynia cases, this could be a factor, even if they're not, you know, again, it may be something's very hard. A dermatologist or gynecologist may not culture anything out, but it's just like the antigen is being released and it's causing inflammation and redness, right? Is that... Exactly, because when they take a swab, that just removes superficial. Uh, yeah. Any any cells, candida cells that are outside the tissue, superficial is the correct word, 
And uh, in the Volvideni cases, due to uh, candida vulvitis, you have to take a scraping with a scalpel. Oh, boy. It's not cutting. It's just scraping all across the surface to pick up some vulvar cells that have the yeast inside, and they will culture if if they take the scalpel and they put it inside a, a test tube with a candida growth medium. So you have to do the scraping, and, and I found one paper <laughs> in the 30 years it took me to write this book, I found one paper that describes what I just said about doing a scraping Wow. And taking that uh, specimen to culture. Wow. Okay. Um, so uh, there's there are other things that call, cause vulvodynia with uh, muscle, sorry, muscle cramping. Uh, I forget the word for that. Um, I'm sure you you know what I'm talking about. Where the the woman's vagina just uh, cramps up and so like they, spasm, they can't like, have like yeah, like a spasm type of thing. Okay. Yes, vaginismus. 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 Yeah. Okay. So there's other causes of vulvodynia, or just plain allergic reaction to douches or perfumed uh, tampons, and and any chemicals that you use down there uh, can cause that irritation. So. If you just see a red tissue, you don't know what it is, so you have to do testing. I'm a scientist, and I, I believe in testing. Yeah. All right, let me ask you about like a, a sort of a case study, just for the listeners, and obviously maybe any physicians that are listening. Um, so a, a patient would come to me and has the risk factors. She was on antibiotics in her teenage years for six months or a year with tetracycline for acne. Later on... Um, maybe she was having digestive problems, was put on a proton pump inhibitor for several months, and now is starting to get recurrent vaginal yeast infections. She's been to her gynecologist several times, gotten three pills of Diflucan. Now she comes to me and you know, frustrated, uh, can't seem to get on track, can't seem to get better. And um, I know in my training and, and in talking to you, what would you normally recommend the duration of treatment to try to, uh, in general, to correct the minimum to correct a chronic, you know, vaginal yeast infection? Uh, the minimum duration two two weeks, but that's okay. a minimum. Minimum, right? Okay, and and then I I believe in talking to you that the minimum meaning if symptoms have abated and they feel better, but if it's still any lingering symptoms, go longer. If they're still having symptoms, you have to continue treatment. It can be as long as two months. Okay. But if it's not responding, and this is important, a lot of patients say, oh, I took the medicine, I got worse. I said, that's good. And I said, what do you mean? And I said, well, that means the the medicine's working and you're experiencing a Herxheimer reaction or yeast die-off. Right. Yeah, that's very important. Where the yeast is killed, some of the yeast, not all of the ones, not the ones inside the tissue, but the, the yeast that are just on the surface are killed and they burst and they liberate their internal protein antigens, and they combine with these uh, IgG antibodies for candida and produce massive immune reactions, all different kinds of immune reactions. Uh, There's the immediate and the delayed and the arthritis reaction and just all kinds of immune reactions. I, I know that you know all about them. Dr. Mitchell. But yes, patient, I do. I, I teach my medical students all I, about them. <laughs> but so, let me ask, yeah. Um, where was I going with that? Well, I guess what you were saying is that you know, there's a, right, there's a lot of, you know, in the, in the, to get better, sometimes you have to feel a little bit worse, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so I always tell patients to start off with a low dose. And in fact, that's just the opposite of what the medical profession uh, 
suggests that you start off with a double dose. And I said, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> if if you're an allergic type person, that will just trigger all these immune reactions. So you start off with uh, a low dose. That, that's actually fascinating. And I tell them to get a tablet in quarters. Wow. Okay, wait, let me, I want to ask you about this. This is really fascinating because you're getting me to think about this. So. Because, you know, again, and you have to make the comparisons as a physician, because you know, normally when we're trying to, you know, treat a strep infection or a pneumococcal pneumonia or something, you know, something really definitive bacterial, it's like bring out the big guns, knock it out hard, you know, et cetera. What you're That's saying, exactly right for the bacteria. Right, the, the right. So, is correct. Right, okay. But so, for yeast. Right, right, for yeast. You're saying something of, yeah, I just want to make sure I'm clarifying this. So what you're saying, so a typical dose for diflucan given by gynecologists would be like 100, 100, 150 milligrams. What I almost think I hear you saying is for maybe even the first few days, first week, do like 50 milligrams, a low dose, so they don't have this die-off reaction. But is it enough to really kill the yeast and or then do you go to the higher levels the next week or the week after well it will kill the sensitive yeast the yeast okay. that are sensitive to fluconazole okay and then as you increase the dosage you kill the yeast that are dose dependent that means that they have to be given a higher dose of the uh, antifungal in order to kill them but the problem is that all of the uh, antifungals that are used today by most physicians, they're fungistatic. They're not fungicidal. That means it just inhibits the growth, but it doesn't kill them. Right. And that's, that, that's, that's yeah. where you get into the latent intracellular yeast growth, where the, the yeast are not killed. They're just inhibited. They're not growing. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, no, and, making, yeah. Uh, they just they're yeah, causing inflammation. Right. I mean, what you're telling, I just want my listeners to know, because you're, you're giving them, you know, medical school 101. <laughs> we, one of the first things we learned in, in pharmacology is the difference between something called uh, static, you know, uh, and cytal. And, uh, you know, there are, met, there are antibiotics that are bacteriostatic, meaning they just sort of inhibit a little bit, but they don't really kill off the full bacteria. Then that's up to your own immune system. That's why your immune system has to be strong. That's and true. Are, they have late bacteria too. Right. And then they have bacteria. There's medications that are bacterial meaning they do kill the bacteria. And you say, well, why are these differences? I don't know. But again, I guess you, you make it. See, that's again, one, of the, one of the things I really loved about your book was that you actually, you know, differentiate like how the newer antifungals, which unfortunately are extremely expensive, uh, and, sometimes yeah. you have to have a, and you have to have a big fight with the insurance company to get them covered, but they are cidal. <laughs> they will kill the yeast. But the question That's I want right. to ask you, though, too, though, is because, again, this comes up, obviously, with antibiotics. Do we have to worry about if a patient has to be on two or three months of an antifungal, whether it's diflucan or itraconazole or whatever, do we have to worry about uh you know, uh, development of resistance, you know, is that the same issue that we get with, like, as we get with antibiotics? No, what causes resistance is to take one dose, one lousy pill of diflucan, which kills off the sensitive yeast, and voila, you have a whole population in the, in the patient's body of resistant yeast. Okay. That's what causes resistant yeast, uh, is so to... Limited. Kill off the sensitive ones with a low dose and then just leave the patient go. Ah, and okay. you should, whenever you're treating, you treat until the symptoms resolve and then you switch from daily treatment to weekly prophylaxis. Okay. And typically you would say three to six months in a lot of these cases are what's needed to really get, you know, obviously each case is different, but in general, a lot of the women who have been suffering with this for a while, this would definitely be, you know, the, the duration that would be needed to. Uh, well, it depends. It really, every patient yes, is different. Yes. You know yeah. that. So, yeah, uh, it, it's hard to make any um, conclusions and firm protocols. Right. You just say treat until the symptoms go away. With the understanding that if you're not improving, 
then you have to switch to another drug or a combination. And I favor the combination. I found a combination therapy that is very effective and produces very strong yeast die-off, but it's a combination of the fluconazole uh, diflucan plus a uh, another drug called terbinafine, which is Lamisil, yeah. which is used primarily for fungi. It doesn't work for candida alone, but in combination with the fluconazole terbinafine combination is fungicidal. Actually, so kills yeah. kills resistant yeast. Yeah, no, I learned that from you. That was a great tip. You know, some of my patients who seem to be because again, a lot of patients who come to me have been on diflucan. For quite a period of time, some of them we also know have like a type of candida called glabarata, which seems to be resistant to diflucan. But again, talking to you, adding in the terbenafine can make a big, big difference. What's your thoughts on nystatin? It's the original antifungal. We know that it doesn't really leave the GI tract. You know, so again, I tend to use it when I believe people have you know overload of yeast in their intestinal tract. What's your thoughts on the place for nystatin in the armamentarium of treating a, um, you know, a candida patient that you know with overgrowth? I think it it should be used together with a systemic drug like fluconazole. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because that you're right, it stays in the intestine, goes out in the feces, and it's not absorbed. So it doesn't interact with other drugs. It's safe for pregnant women, babies, and old people. Right. So again, hopefully, like I like to make the analogy, when you're keeping the intestine relatively candida clean, it's less likely that it'll disseminate the antigen to other areas of the body. Because again, as we're, you know, really appreciating the microbiome, you know, from the intestine and obviously affecting other mucosal membranes, is the key issue in in so many of these conditions. Um, okay, I'd like to go on to yeah, one of the... Have, yeah. That, that's right. You're saying you have to treat the intestine... Right. Intestinal yeast in addition to where wherever else it is in the body. Right. Okay, I want to ask... You just, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. I wanted to ask you about, you know, this is important because, again, this is, <laughs> you know, and again, I learned a lot from you on this. You know, so many patients who self-diagnose, who sort of try to self-treat, they are very fixated on the candida diet. Now, again, oh, yeah. Y- yeah. So, again, years ago, if you were on the candida diet, you were looked as uh, like an alien. <laughs> now it's kind of cool because... All these other diets, keto, paleo, whatever, gluten-free, they basically are sort of a variation of the, you know, the candida diet. But one of the things that we spoke about in our first um, podcast, which I've repeated to patients many, many times, is that you can't, you know, uh, cure candida with diet alone. Although I do think there's an important component of that. So I want to ask you, you know, because so many people have so many questions about this. What is important, and you and you talk about this in your book, but what's important about the Canada diet, and how long do patients have to be strict, and you know what what's its overall place in the in the program? Well, the answer is very simple. I I tell all the patients I consult with, if you eat something and it makes you sick, don't eat it again. Okay. If you eat carbohydrates and they do not make you sick anymore. Go ahead and have a baked potato once in a while or oatmeal in the morning. But it all depends on the patient's symptoms. And if you get treated and cure the the, uh, intestinal yeast, you can go back on a normal diet. Okay. It's just the, the matter is to get treated long enough and then go on the weekly prophylaxis. Every patient who gets treated for candida, when once they their symptoms resolve, to go go on a weekly treatment instead of a daily treatment for six months or three months for however long it. I tell them if you start developing symptoms in between during the seven days that you're off. 
treatment, then you know it's still there and go back on daily treatment. Yeah, that makes sense. The other, the other thing too also, and I've had a few cases of this, and I think we discussed this once also again before, that it's funny. I know I've, when I've treated patients for intestinal candida or in other you know issues with that, and they've gotten better. And then sometimes I'll get a call six months later or a year later and like, Dr. Mitchell, let's all come back and da, da, da. And they're like, okay, what happened? And then they'll come in and we have a discussion. And, you know, it's, at first I'm like confused because they haven't been on antibiotics. They haven't done steroids. But then they'll say, oh, you know, I was hearing that uh, fermented foods like kombucha and sauerkraut. I heard that's really good for your gut health. And they were eating and drinking it and all that stuff. And they ran into problems. So... What's the issue with the fermented foods? Is that something that they have to t- really watch out for? Um, when you well, have kombucha a, has yeast in it, right? Right. So that's so, so again, they're just patients, giving themselves yeast infections again, right? Oh, well, I'm saying, but what's confusing to the patients is that you know they hear that how all these kind of fermented foods are good, but I think typically they're probably good for people that have a very healthy gut, and probably especially in Asian cultures where they're used to all of these things. But somebody who's been treated with antibiotics or steroids or birth control pills or whatever that set them up to have this imbalance, yeast foods will cause a problem. So you, I guess oh, yeah. what I'm hearing is you agree with that. And You so- have to take probiotics and there's 10 steps in my program. We've only discussed uh, three or four of them. Right. You take probiotics and some prebiotics um, that feed the... The friendly yeast. Yeah. And there's several different prebiotics. Can you, can you mention them? Yeah, could you, I know you mentioned in the book. Can you mention just briefly, if you wouldn't mind, a couple of the prebiotics that's important? And maybe, you know, people also always ask me too, what's the best probiotic for candida? So, um, you know, I, I an okay. interesting, yeah. Cause I probiotic think, yeah. should contain both lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. Okay. And the the second name of a, of a um, a bacterium like Lactobacillus acidophilus doesn't matter. When when you buy some probiotics, it's usually Lactobacillus something or else. Right, that's right, right. Like Rutani. Matter. The second name doesn't matter as long mm-hmm. as it's Lactobacillus, which is the the normal case, uh, normal bacterium in the gut. Or it's bifidobacterium. The the bifidobacterium is usually in the lower intestine. Lactobacillus is throughout the intestine. Those are the healthy bacteria. And then there's the anaerobes, but they don't have any probiotics for the anaerobes. Mm. You know, I've heard from I've heard two different conflicting things from uh, two other holistic doctors that I, I really trust a lot. They're MDs and stuff. Is about Saccharomyces boulardii. What's your opinion on that? Because um, supposedly what I've heard is that obviously it it, it is a yeast, but it, it pushes out the bad yeast. Is that is there a truth to that or no. which, which, you don't believe that? No, somebody made that up. Uh, Saccharomyces boulardii is the same. The DNA is the same as Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It's the yeast that's used for beer and wine and making bread. So it's yeast. And it has been shown in diagnostic tests and in uh, controlled studies that it does help to prevent uh, candida. However, it goes against the rules as far as the candida diet says not to eat yeast and molds. Don't yeast. Don't eat yeasty moldy foods. Okay, so that all right. I mean that makes sense. So obviously moldy cheeses. And again, I guess you would tell patients if you know again if they want to drink alcohol, not beer, to drink distilled liquors like vodka or tequila. I mean these are the questions that I get asked all the time when people you know socially would like to you know have some wiggle room. Right, but they can't drink alcohol when they're taking systemic antifungals because that interacts with the the liver. Right, right. That's important. Um, So do you worry about bread? I mean, again, because bread, you know. know, (laughs) Well, I go back to my one sentence. 
If you eat something, mm-hmm. you're sick. Don't eat it again. And okay. bread contains yeast. Right. It also contains gluten. Right. Also contains carbohydrates. So mm-hmm. bread should be avoided if they can during right. during the treatment phase. But once the symptoms resolve, they can slowly add back certain things to their diet. And if they don't have a bad reaction, they can start okay. eating normally again. Yeah. Well, that's a big relief. I think, again, I learned this from you because, again, I see people that are so extreme and then sometimes they get a little bit better, but their life, they're miserable (laughs) and they haven't been treated thoroughly with antifungals the way you recommend. And, uh, you know, so I I think this is a lot of hope for anybody that's suffering. This is not a... uh, this is not a, a death or a um, you know a life sentence <laughs> to misery. Yeah. This is you know this is to get better. Yeah, uh, there, there's just so many things that are incorrect that you said uh, on the internet or even in some of the older books. I read so many things that I put in my book. Every time I, I came across something that was incorrect, I have myths. And then fact, myth, fact, myth, right. fact, all right. the way through the book. There's right. so right. much misunderstanding about things. And um, I'm going to start a blog because I found more uh, things that people are, are not understanding properly. Yes, that would be great. Um, well, we are going to kind of wrap up a little bit. I'm going to probably have to do another podcast with you because this is awesome. Um, any thoughts that you have for men and women who believe they have candor, like what they should do? Um, and uh, and also maybe you can talk a little bit about your yeast consulting services, you know, and how you work with patients. Well, I always recommend that, that patients give their primary care physician a chance to go back and say, look here, this is a real disease that I think I have and I need to be tested. And in my book, I have a list of uh, table number seven is a list of laboratories that uh, test for Canada. That They do blood tests. They do cultures of the uh, feces to find out if they have intestinal yeast overgrowth. Uh, and to try to con- to persuade their primary care physician to please test them, and then if the tests are positive, to prescribe treatment, the long-term antifungals. And if they won't agree to that, then... Uh, you can write to the laboratories and get a list of physicians in their city that work with that laboratory to order the tests, and then those same doctors would be available to do uh, testing and treatment. Makes sense. Uh, if they just walk into an urgent care clinic, they usually miss misdiagnose, and they they probably end up getting more antibiotics because doctors just don't know very much about the yeast overgrowth. Yeah. Actually, one last thing I want to ask you about, too, before we conclude. Uh, the supplements, you know, the caprylic acids, you know, the, the Pudarco teas, do they have a place in uh, sort of a, once patients are better in maintaining control of the yeast in a more natural way? What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think they're fine. I, they, they definitely have antifungal activity, and uh, there are all sorts of patients that sometimes that they they can get better with just the antifungal supplements, and they don't need their doctor. Okay. But then there's some really hardcore patients who need both the treatment for the yeast infection long term. And they also need treatment for the candida allergy, which is allergy shots with candida extract. And way back when, before even nystatin was discovered, all they had was uh, uh, shots of uh, of, of fungal antigens. They used to use that for treatment. So they've forgotten 
Well, I'll have to jump in on that. You you left a little opening for me, and I'll have to again. This is why I said we can always have a spirited disagreement. Um, you you know that I'm board certified allergist immunologist for thirty years, and originally I was classically trained and I gave allergy shots. But over twenty five years ago, and some of my patients know this, I deviated from that. And I went the sublingual route. They were doing in Europe tremendous work uh, showing that sublingual immunotherapy is effective and in fact is safer than giving shots. And in fact, one of the people that originally trained me who's from the Midwest was very big on Canada, believe it or not. You know, he he worked in the same practice as George Croker, as, as you know, Dr. Morris, and they treated a lot of Candida and fungal. And they swore that the injections were more of a problem compared to the sublingual. So I've been treating patients with sublingual uh, drops for not only environmental allergies, for food allergies, the dangerous ones, and there's a lot of studies now that are showing that that's effective, but for Candida as well. And we've had some really nice results with women where we're able to continue to, to uh, strengthen their immune system, build up blocking antibodies, I believe, so that they don't need to be on long courses of antifungals. And they can also, uh, you know, expand their diet. So I just well, I had to throw that if in. If you have a result from multiple patients, you should publish it because I've never seen a paper saying what you just said. Okay, I really, I really should. I should have, you know, been a little more scientific. Because I, I feel just uh, based on fundamental principles that the uh, the sublingual is good for the environmental allergens and the food allergens. I agree with that, but you already have candida in your mouth, so I don't see how a sublingual candida antigen could work. Well, you know what I'll explain to you the, the way I see it in um, in the immunology that it works is that. Um, again, like when I have people that have severe food allergies, okay, they, um, they have a lot of what's called IgE floating against the, the particular, say, peanut or tree nut. And by actually giving them in very low doses, sublingually, the food they're allergic to, their body builds up blocking antibodies, and it actually tames down what's called the basophil activation. And I think that, you know, talking to George Croker over the years, who's done a lot of this work also, I think he published a chapter in, in one, of the, one of the food allergy books. It's basically the same premise. You know, it's also something they used to use, Dr. Crandell, by the way, they used to be, the allergists used to give in injections, actually, of what they used to call, um, they used to call it bacterial antigen or something. It, it seemed like, again, all the doctors thought it was voodoo, but it, it did boost the immune system because when you continually stimulate the, uh, by exposing the immune system to uh, an antigen, you know, to let's say candida or, or whatever it is, the body will produce, you know, protective antibodies. So that's again, the, the thinking, but you're right. I think that down the line too, you're, you're giving me an idea. I think I'm going to have to start to record a little bit more comprehensively. It's just hard in New York because they've given us a lot of trouble ordering blood testing for candida. Uh, because I would love to measure baseline candida levels of people that first come to see me, like their IgE and their IgG, and then over time of treatment show that I think that they're, they're blocking antibodies. The IgG will go up, and that's why they're, um, you know, they're doing better. But anyway, we're going to have to... Yeah. And uh, I, I've published a review article showing that candida allergy injections... Uh, does cure recurrent yeast vaginitis. And since I published that review article, there's been a lot of other mm. prospective placebo-controlled uh, studies showing that candida allergy injections does work for yeast vaginitis and probably also works for yeast infections elsewhere in the body. Yeah. I, well, you know, again, in my experience is, you know, for many years of doing and, and treating patients with mold allergy, which is, an, you know, an airborne um, fungal uh, type of exposure that sublingual works really well without the side effects. A lot of people get like, believe it or not, get anaphylaxis from the uh, from mold injections. But anyway. Well, I good. believe you. And I yeah. said that it does work. I've read yeah. the papers that yeah. uh, does work with environmental allergens, but Candida is already in the mouth. No. So that's why I would, would predict that it wouldn't 
wouldn't work. But I, no, I'm, I'm open-minded. If, yeah, if I, yeah I, I have to go. I have to go by my experience. But I, I think you're, you've challenged me, and I'm going to take up that challenge because I, I also like to have hard data and I like to do the best practices. And uh, so, and unfortunately, you know, yeah. again, what what happens a lot in medicine too, by the way, as you know, is that sometimes, you know, you're doing something for a while and you do fortunately see that it seems to be working. And that's when doctors, because that's actually how the food allergy for drops work. There was a practice again, Dr. Croker's practice was doing it for years. And finally they went to Duke and they, they, the, they went to them and said, look, can, you know, we don't have the funding or the money. Can you do double blind placebo co- controlled studies for like four years on people with peanut allergy? And Duke took them on and lo and behold, it, it worked and it really elevated the credibility of the treatment. So you're right. Well, I, mean, I, that, you know. I believe that. Yeah. And I already said three times that I believe yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. But if you have data on your patients, you can publish a paper just summarizing your patient data. You don't have to do a big study, placebo control or anything like that. You just summarize your, your data for your patients who have responded positively to whatever treatment you use, and then you can publish it as a letter to the editor. It's, it's not a big deal. You're right. But it's just publishing yeah, what right. you found. You're right. Well, talking about publishing, as we, we uh, conclude, this work, Overcoming Yeast Infections by Dr. Marjorie Crandell, a 10-step program of medical care and self-health for candidiasis, as I said, and I'll I'll say it very clearly. It's the most comprehensive book on Canada ever written. And I recommend any of my patients, any pay, any of the listeners and people that suffer with this issue to get the book and work with your doctor. So again, Dr. Grindell, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and share your uh, expertise. 